Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of The Private Collector. Today's episode, Should the Gateway, by Aaron Vleck, is our series finale. That's right, it's the end of the road for The Private Collector. But if you are a fan of the show and Frank's adventures, you don't have to worry. He will actually be returning in our new prequel, Cartwright and Enfield Detective Agency, which will start this winter for our Private Collector level supporters on Patreon, and will be heard in our main feed probably summer of 2022. Now, because this is the series finale, we decided it was important to share it with the entire audience today. Starting up a new series is kind of expensive, and season 11 is a beast. So we are definitely relying on our supporters to help us make the new series possible and to help us keep making the show possible. Now, today's episode stars me as Frank Enfield. The voice of the librarian is, of course, Nelson W. Piles, playing the role here for the last time. Kareem Cronfley as the voice of the guide and the entity, Dana M. Lewis as the voice of Martine, and our good friend Graham Rowett as the voice of Frank's brother. Today's custom score was created by our resident composer and executive producer, Nico Viteze, of We Talk of Dreams. Now, without further ado, hold on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. The Private Collector Season 2, Episode 7, Chud, The Gateway Chud, or cutting through hindrances and obscurations, sometimes called demons or gods. This may be accomplished by a powerful meditative rite that practices a stunning array of visions, music, song, and prayer. It engages every aspect of one's being and produces a powerful transformation of the interior landscape. And then again... Under certain conditions, it may also be achieved as an actual event in the course of one's physical life. Mr. Renfield! Mr. Renfield, sir! They're coming! You must go, sir! Go now! Don't know how long I can hold them off. The old man's words shattered the dream I was having of Martine and was accompanied by a pounding on my door like it was about to cave in. Somebody was getting the holy crap beat out of them out there. So I staggered to my feet and took stock of things, eyeing the dingy two-bit room I'd been holed up in for the past week, the old guy in the hall being the innkeep. I always slept in my clothes whenever Spidey slipped me the high sign that it might be a good idea, and had traded my suitcase for an army rucksack for quick getaways. I slid into my holster, 
grabbed the Colt and saw there were enough rounds in it. Then I yanked open the door and leapt into the hall, the Colt fanning the scene in front of me. The old guy was okay, but there was a real dust-up going on. The sound of breaking glass and a scream and a loud thud got me running towards the wrap of the melee and three young guys yelling at somebody in the street below. The innkeep came up alongside me, and I saw the grin spread across his face. My sons, but those evil ones, they will come back, and you best not be here when they do, for all our sakes, he said, patting me on the back. That's when I saw the pool of blood and the knot of young blokes leaning out the window into the alley and raining curses on whoever just made a run for it down the alley. I said my so-longs and disappeared into the thick swell of humanity that swelled sluggishly alongside the narrow streets at sunset. The air was a dense haze of incense smoke, grilling meats, garbage, and other things. The haunting sound of the evening call to prayer wafting overhead and a bunch of other sounds not given to such high-minded and holy thoughts. A week in Peshawar, and I was still no closer to finding a guide who spoke my lingo, nor a clear route to my latest juju destination, a remote mountaintop temple carved into the bowels of the oldest rock in the world that looked down on millions of souls in as many years. The roof of the world, they called it, and from what I could see lying due north of me and poking through the clouds, That was the whole truth of it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a bad feeling about this one. Too damn many unknowns for starters, and too many things already gone wrong. Unknown language, except for a few old-timers, and I'd be parting company with them once I got a guide and headed into the greatest unknown of all. Got another guide, that is. The first one I was supposed to meet here had gotten himself killed the day before I arrived. About six weeks back, I'd put myself on ice down Mexico Way, where I did zilch besides lay on the beach, sucking up highballs and licking my wounds. It was always that way after one of the librarian's capers, and this was no exception. Well, this time was a little different. Something had changed and shifted loose inside me after I tangled with the king in yellow. I was still trying to get my head around it. While I was killing time laying on the sand with the sun beating down, I started to feel different. To feel more like my old self again. Even sounded more like myself again. I'd have asked Martine or the librarian what they thought. But that was the problem. Martine was AWOL, the librarian himself, incommunicado for weeks. I'd been working some oddball cases of my own here and there to kill time and pick up a few bucks for the coming long, cold Hudson winter looming on the horizon. It had been ghosts, mostly. Boring crap. Who, what, when, where, why, and how to get rid of them permanently. I'd been doing that stuff since I was a pup, earning my daily soda pop and Tootsie Rolls back in New Orleans with the gang I'd grown up with. I was just marking time, and the occasional grab-ass with somebody who thought he was a big badass juju man and got their thrills making life hell for the little guys. Well, That was something I could never resist. Kind of like street scrapping and wiping the alleys down with neighborhood bullies. Which led me to my current location. So, there I was. Between the roof of the world and the soft white underbelly of teeming humanity. Exposed for all to see. Drowning in poverty. Dressed in a jumbled, ragged splendor I could never have reckoned on stateside. I contemplated this symbolic end of the road for humanity in a dingy little tea shop where I sat on a rug on the ground and sipped tea surrounded by a crowd of youth and toothless old timers who laughed and roared like the best of the bar rooms I'd caroused in around the world. And here I was, alone, no more than a few words of the local speak under my belt, no guide, run out of my digs by a pack of what I never got a look at, and now I was dead in the water. Finally, an old man from the street came in, hauling a steaming cauldron, and everybody began scooping up some chunky gruel into bowls they pulled out of their pockets and laying down a few coins. I did the same, and the gruel wasn't half bad, full of some kind of meat and flavored up in a way I'd never tasted before, 
but it was damn good eating grub. So I tucked in and wiped the bowl clean with a chunk of bread somebody was kind enough to pass to me. The place was starting to thin out, and I faced the fact that soon I was going to be out on the street in the dead of night with nowhere to go, and I had a dark suspicion of what might happen to foreigners wandering these streets at night. I still had the last of Coyote's shades I was saving for an emergency, and I hoped that wouldn't be tonight, but I had it on me just the same. I was about to get up and wander out to meet my fate when a shadow fell across my table, and a voice spoke to me in the clear King's English. Mind if I join you? He asked, sitting himself down on the carpet next to me, not waiting for my answer. I looked up and saw as bizarre a figure as any haint, tall, dressed in the mishmash local garb from more than a few different folk, trail-stained and road-weathered, head to foot in mud and dust, smelling of horses and wearing a black turban that was about to fall into his face. The eyes were a riveting milky green, but I'd seen that too in these parts. My head said to get up and clear out, but Spidey, that uncanny sense of mine, said I should stick around and hear the feller out. You looking for a guide? He said, glancing away and saying something in the local speak, then tossing back the steaming tea that appeared instantly and calling for another. And how do you come by that tidbit of information? I demanded, glaring him down and letting it be known I was no hapless traveler waiting to get fleeced and shivved for my stupidity. The guy just stared at me, his eyes absolutely unreadable, the thing that immediately put my backside up. So I slid into my other modes of looking at an ombre, and the air shimmered and then settled again, and I saw nothing. He just sat there eyeing me, not a muscle or a hair on him moving, like he was frozen time. I opened myself all the way, as I do when looking at a haint or anything else that made no sense, and I was trying to reckon. The room shifted, and then, again, nothing. The guy just sat there, waiting for me to finish whatever I was doing, and then ask some more dumb questions. This was nothing I'd ever crossed paths with before, and I couldn't rightly tell if it was a man or something else altogether, or nothing at all but ascending, void of essence or any sort of variety. This last bit kind of made sense, and why he'd be speaking English, as they can sound like anything they got called to sound or look like. Do you need a guide or not? He asked with the same tone as if he was asking if I'd take sugar with a cup of joe. How'd you know I was looking for a guide? Did old Hassan at the inn tell you that? I asked, buying some time and trying to get a feel for what his angle was. I knew my sort was ripe for this kind of thing, and I could just as easily end up in an alley with a knife in my back to see the sunrise. Where are you headed? I asked, trying to cipher if he really did know anything about me and where I was looking to go but he just glanced sharply toward the ceiling. Up, he added with a sly smile before tossing off the third glass of tea. You coming or not? We just sat there for a few seconds, although, as they say, it felt like an eternity. The guy was all wrong, but I couldn't rightly say how, and that made me bristle. I was used to sizing up just about anybody and anything, but this fella just felt like an empty, gaping hole where something or somebody should be. He had the similar feel of the crow fellows to him when they'd taken me clean off this man's map and outside of all created time and space. Except there was nothing funny about this fella, nothing playful or menacing either, for that matter. So we just locked eyes, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't squirming where I sat. How far are you going? I asked. All the way, he said, never taking his eyes off me. Up to the highest villages? Beyond. How far beyond? I asked, and he just smiled. Far as you want. Maybe farther, he said flatly, looking away, pausing a few heartbeats. Maybe all the way. You want to know what's up there, he added, and it wasn't a question. You coming? For some reason... Probably nothing more than my damned unquenchable curiosity. Without giving it much thought, I gave him a quick nod. Yep, I'm going. When do we pull out? I asked, wondering where I was going to hole up for the night 
noticing it was starting to snow and the temperature had dropped. The old guy who ran the place was closing up, and we were the only two still in the joint. We go now. The guy stood up and pointed to my gear, all I had with me. We go now. You mean in the middle of the night? That's crazy, fella. Hold on a minute, I said. But I'd stood up anyway, grabbing my pack and the rucksack that carried my hex gear. I leave now. You come, you stay. You decide. He barked, slipping into the local patois as he headed for the door. All I could do was follow as he led me out into the deserted street and then to a makeshift stable where he had several small, rugged horses, common to these parts, saddled, packed, and ready for the road. Without a word, he grabbed my packs and secured them to one of the animals, who snorted its displeasure and gave me a sidelong glance. For God's sake, man, I bellowed. What's your damn name, at least? Mine's Enfield, but I get the feeling you already know that and a darn sight more about me. Who sent you? All I got by way of an answer was the guy's backside hoisting into the saddle and tossing me the reins of my own pony and pack animals. Now, something you gotta understand about old Frank here is I get a jonesin' real bad whenever my hackles start rising up on the back of my neck. You know they say there's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, by my reckoning, there's no such thing as bad juju anymore. Not since my run-ins with Coyote and the librarians jimmy-rigging my innards and psychic whatnot. These days, hell, I only ate for the pleasure of it and drank as I still could. Hell, I didn't know if I could even die anymore. If I was like the librarian himself or well on my way. And the librarian was not one to pass out the hints and clues, favoring rather to throw a fellow into the deep end and let him sort himself out if he could. So, Anything that smelled of the other side, well, I wanted in on it. I knew this guy was hot, but I had no idea how he'd sussed me out, and I figured that was Juju's doing too. So, I climbed into the saddle and rode out past midnight, into the dead black night that smelled of snow, with a complete stranger in a place where I didn't speak the language, had no idea how things was done, and much less what kind of haints and hoo-ha they had in these parts. Didn't matter, though. I was the match, or better of any of it. By dawn, we'd entered a valley full of orchards and steppe plateaus where people waded knee-deep in water, grabbing handfuls of long green shoots and tossing them into baskets they had tied to their backs. Nobody paid us any mind, and by sunset, we'd left all that far behind and were headed up a steep blue-gray trail where nothing seemed to grow. Every now and then, we passed little whitewashed affairs, not much taller than a man, and colored flags flapping in the breeze, hundreds of them from the looks of it. What are those things? I yelled to my guide, who moved on ahead, leaving me to bring up the rear. We didn't see anyone else along the way, and all tries on my part to strike up some chatter were met with silence, and this time was no different. The guy didn't even give me a glance. If I'd fallen on my ass off this horse, he'd probably never even notice until he stopped for the night. My curiosity was met further on up the trail. People of all ages, some of them barely able to walk, gathered around what I now saw was shrines of a sort, attaching more flags and leaving food and other offerings, bowing and doing full-on prostrations in the dirt in front of them. It made a kind of sense, and I tucked all that away in the old memory kit for later ponderance. By the end of the third day, I'd given up trying to strike up any kind of talk with my guide, and just sat back and took in the scenery, glad I'd learned to ride somewhere along the way of my roving youth, so it didn't rub me the wrong way, so to speak. I was on my guard, though, the Colt 45 where it belonged, snug and safe under my arm, ready if I needed to call it into action. I was getting a bit buggy, too. The guy, whose name I still couldn't pry out of him, kept glancing back at me, grinning and nodding in a way I didn't like. But beyond that, we just kept on moving higher and higher into the mountains, and eventually we'd come clean into snow country. 
my meager grub was gone that I'd had in my pack, and we'd passed no villages in the last day and a half where I could have begged or bought any. Fortunately, the guy had been grabbing food from those shrines along the way, and the snow runoffs from higher up kept us in the sweetest water I'd ever tasted. About midday on that sixth day, we come across the damnedest sight I'd ever seen. Three men, monks from the look of them, set to chopping up a couple of corpses and just leaving them there as a flock of hungry-looking vultures looked on patiently for what was to come. The guide pulled us up short and signaled this was where we'd make camp. Not my idea of a campsite, within throwing distance of the carnage, but I didn't have a say in the matter. Then, their job complete, the monks scrambled back down the mountain and disappeared into a gorge. We don't bury our dead, the guide mumbled, and it almost made me jump out of my skin. First words I'd heard out of him since we'd left the coffee house back at the beginning of this wild ride. The snow set in around sunset something fierce, and it already laid on pretty thick around our camp. Me and my little homemade tent, and the other fella in his. Before it got black as pitch out, I saw another of those so-called burials. The vultures already at it. We hunkered down for the night, and I did some sightseeing on the ether, so to speak, and could feel nothing in the near vicinity. I'd just shut my eyes when I heard a snuffling around outside, and the sounds of something big grunting and tearing at the corpses, fighting off the vultures in the process. I couldn't cipher what it could be, and I didn't know if they had big cats up here. Could be. Pulling back the flap of my tent a bit, I looked toward the carnage and saw something big and dark going to work on the fresh butchered chunks of what had not long ago been human. I got out my colt, made sure it was loaded, and just watched. But the thing headed for the other guy's tent, or mine, looking for something a bit warmer to gnaw on, I was taking it down. Sure enough, the thing loped toward the other tent, and I scrambled out and took aim. But then, my hackles rose up as the thing stood up on its hind legs, and I could see it was a man. And not just any man. It was my, so to speak, guide, the protector of foreign travelers in these dangerous lands. I looked back down the trail and saw the little hex lights twinkling, ready and waiting to guide me back to the last village we passed if things took a turn. The lights were the Baron Somdi's handiwork. He'd given me one little black pebble in a leather pouch and told me I'd never run out of them. No matter how many I used, there's always one more at the bottom of the pouch to lay down a lighted path back the way I'd come in times of need. I thought about it. I'd heard about werewolves and the like. Hell, a kid like me collected all the comics, saw the movies, and loved to get the bejesus scared out of us on Saturday afternoons. But other than the crow gazers, and the haints that took other kinds of forms, I'd never actually heard tell of the likes of this guy. Not in the real lore of Juju as it is. I also knew I wasn't a natural man anymore. Not since the librarian messed with me and my innards. Anyway, I knew nobody was taking old Frank Enfield out on this mountainside, but I didn't know what messing with the guide would do to me if he decided to take a bite out of me or lay into me with his claws. I did not need any more hate and juju riding under my skin than I already had from the librarian, from Coyote, from Jin and Crows, and who the hell knew what the Baron had given me along the way. I was just fine in my skin for now, but I wanted to know what this guy was up to needed to know what laid at the end of the road up there, where we were headed through the snow, when the only trail I'd seen for a couple of days was our tracks through the snow leading back down the mountain before the wind and snow cleared all that away. The seventh day out, the snow was so heavy I couldn't see the guide and his ponies just a few feet ahead. My own horse was stumbling up to his knees. Then... The wind hit us coming off the peaks like a prize fighter's fists, pummeling us non-stop for better than half the day. My guide slowed a pace, and it was only because of the bells on his reins that I was able to tell he was anywhere nearby. It was that sound alone I was following. He was hunched over in his saddle, 
and he looked more like an apparition, or some snow demon, or both. Finally, some hours later, the fellow jumped down from his horse and signaled me to do the same. Led the horses by their reins up an incline so steep, I didn't think we'd make it. But somehow, after God knows how long, we pulled up near a sheer rock face in a shallow cave to shelter out of the blast. I figured we'd camp there until the snow let up, but I was not prepared for what the fella did next. Taking out a flask of what looked like some kind of local hooch, he offered it to me, and I declined, thinking that the best course of action under the circumstances. He pulled back a long slug, capped the flask, and tucked it back into his heavy padded coat. Then he just stared at me. You stay. I go back to Peshawar now, he muttered, like it was all agreed upon. Now wait just a damn minute here, I roared. I put up with all your nonsense, your silence, not telling me where we was headed, or even your damned name. I even kept my lip zipped when you wandered out into the burial grounds back there a ways. Oh yeah, you think I didn't see all that? But the man just looked at me, like he was staring out a train window. You think I didn't see you? I'm not just any fellow myself, old son, and I figure you know that. So I just rolled with the scenery. Yeah ready to meet whatever comes along with whatever I got, and that's plenty. So what the hell is going on? You stay. I go back to town now, he repeated. He comes soon. What? Who comes soon? There ain't nothing around here for miles. We're in the middle of damn nowhere. Our ass is hanging over the side of a cliff. No more talk. Wait here, he said. And then he jumped up and disappeared around a crack in the sheer black rock face. I could hear him mumbling. But it wasn't talk. It was chanting, reciting of a sort. Though I had no idea what it was, of course. Then he returned and pointed in the direction he'd come. Going now. It's good. He waits. And then, without another word, he leapt into the saddle and gathered up all the reins of the pack animals, mine included, after shoving my gear off with his foot into the snow. And then, with a few hut-huts, he disappeared into the wall of snow and wind and the howling gale that made it impossible to hear the bells on his horse's reins. And he was gone, leaving me to contemplate my sins on the side of this mountain. Not even my hex lights showed up more than one or two, and they faded away too, as the darkness fell, and the wind all but knocked me off my feet. I was a dead man, plain and simple. A man too damn curious for his own good. Then I put all the melodrama aside and thought about some of the cards I still had in my hand. Okay, then. Okay, so I'll raise and see you, old mountain mine. And I scrambled around the face of the cliff to where the guide had disappeared before leaving me to my lonesome. I moved along the smooth face, more by feel than sight. And sure enough, there was a crack in the rock just big enough for me to squeeze through. Easing my way inside, I stood there with my jaw dangling. It was a huge mammoth cave, and the walls were clearly carved by human hands and a haint-like ingenuity. Before me lay the stark black walls of a maze that barred any deeper entrance into the cave, unless you were willing to go into those dark tunnels and halls that led off into the greater darkness. The roof of the place disappeared into a thick, impenetrable haze overhead, reeked of old incense, candle wax, and rancid butter, and other things I had no countenance of, but didn't sit right with me in the least. There were only two ways to play this, head back out into the snow on my own, or take my chances in the maze and see where it led. Being who I am, I took to the maze and girded myself for whatever waited for me inside. The thing was carved out of what looked like volcanic rock, black and jagged looking, like it had cut a man to pieces if he wandered in here without a light to see by. I eased my way down the first tunnel, wide enough to walk through, but not much more. The place felt wrong, so I took out my hex wand and let it shine a light for me. I saw several other tunnels branching off here and there, all dark, all leading who knew where. I let the hex light guide me, 
and when it pulled me towards one of the tunnels, I ducked inside. I could hear a woman crying, sobbing her eyes out, and my skin prickled. I sidestepped my way closer and closer toward the sound and came to a crossroads of sorts where four of the tunnels intersected in a small courtyard where something that sort of looked like my Martine was trussed up and lashed squirming to a pole. It was Martine's voice, all right. I almost ran to that voice. But Spidey and the hex lamp held me where I stood in a vice grip. How could that be Martine? <laughs> you gotta do better than that, whoever, whatever you are. Frankie, Frankie, please, it's me. Baby, help me. What are you doing? You're not Martine. And I don't fall for this kind of grade school tricks. You don't think I could feel it if Martine was here? Whoever you are, whoever put you in here, you're on your own. Or even dare you, baby. Thing was, though, with Hex and Juju, I suppose you could never really be sure of anything. Then the thing screamed a curse and disappeared. And I kept on, my guard hackles up as always, waiting for whatever was next. This was kid stuff, really, I told myself. And clearly, whatever ran this joint was throwing me twigs. But I knew it was bound to get harder. Well, 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 the voice said, thick with disdain and contempt, as I turned another corner and entered another crossroads courtyard. If it isn't my dear brother, elder by heart, how many minutes was it? Two? Three? Must have been a hell of a few minutes you had there to be on your own without me. ha 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 ha! Come greet me, brother! Oh, this is Rich. Whoever's behind the scenes here, you're behind the time. My brother's dead. He can't be here. And if he was, it was me who helped him along to the promised land with a great by and by. I shook my head and heard no more of my brother. The next voice gave me pause because, well, you just never know. Mr. Renfield. So good of you to finally come along. We have so much to teach you now that you are ready. Now that you have proven yourself worthy of greater and great things by finding your way to this place. (laughs) The librarian's voice boomed, filling the chamber with his characteristic laugh. Oh, it's you, is it? He said in my friendliest voice. But hey, you know what they say around here. No, what? He said, and if I had any doubts, I knew this was not the librarian, who seemed to know just about everything. What do they say around here? (laughs) I continued to make my way towards the voice and entered another crossroads that broadened into a larger chamber. There sat the librarian in all his glory in some kind of throne contraption. I stepped into the chamber and he grinned beckoning me to come closer. Tell me, please, what, pray, do they say around here? What they say is, I half-whispered, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, I yelled, charging toward him with my hex wand thrust out ahead of me like a revolver. The wand flooded the room with light and struck the librarian full on his chest. His startled face crumpled into a look of rage and hatred. Then I backed out of the room, watching the apparition melt into the ground like water. Then he was gone. I followed the Hexwan's glowing light, and it almost dragged me to yet another large chamber. What lay before me was a bizarre dance of demon-looking figures in full regalia, a cacophony of unseen large symbols and horns roared in my ears. The figures, costumed in bright-colored robes, their faces hidden behind ferocious painted masks, towered to a height of seven feet or better. They danced, knees up, foot to foot, slow, silent, their long, trailing robes floating on invisible currents while the horns and cymbals drove me mad, and I tried to shut out the noise by ramming my fists into my ears. They were hideous, 
glorious, and I couldn't drag my eyes away from them. I wanted to fling myself into their midst and run screaming from their presence. Then a powerful unseen hand dragged me into the dance. A black female warrior demon wielding a curved sword and a necklace of dripping skulls falling over her huge breasts stood in front of me. The blade flashed in the moonlight over my head, a black flame arching along its edge. Then she struck me with the flat side of the sword, and I staggered under its incredible weight. Another dancer, a vicious dog-lion thing, his robes and muscular body dripped bloody red all over, moved to bar my retreat. Curling horns disappeared into his flaming mane, and crimson smoke poured from his broad-flared nostrils. In his left hand was a large, night-blooming lotus. He thrust the fleshy blossom under my nose. The noxious, heady fumes set my skull on fire, and my brain exploded and poured down my face. The last dancer carried a smoking bowl of blood and a dorje wand. Dipping the wand into the blood, he shook it three times into my face, over my body. When I looked into the dark, unhuman eyes, I knew none of these figures was wearing a mask. The music stopped suddenly, and the silence of the tomb filled the air as the dancers evaporated like mist, and darkness swallowed all from sight. I'd about had it with the floor show and old home week stuff, so I was damn glad when I finally stumbled out of the maze and took in the final scene was lit by what looked like thousands of tiny bowls filled with something alight. The back of the cave from floor to ceiling, far above my head, was a massive carved stone wheel, like the Buddhist wheel of the Dharma, only this one had 13 spokes instead of the usual 12, and I took it for a declaration of what side of the street the residents of this place operated on. The place was dead silent, and for all the activity in the maze, seemed nobody was home here. I took that for about a plug nickel's worth and ramped up my guard. There was a movement in the corner of the wheel that caught my attention. Then I stifled a gasp. There was a huge carving of a man in the middle of the wheel. His head, arms, and legs splayed wide and weaving into the rock that held him. Thing was, though, the guy looked like he was moving, writhing around in his agony as he fought all the demons of hell to break free of his captivity. I couldn't help myself. I walked closer and got a good look. He was stone all right, and he was alive, fighting with all his might to get himself loose of that thing. He finally took notice of me and looked down at me, his stone eyes filled with something I couldn't quite place, more than rage and fear, something else too far bigger and older than both of those. I saw then that the wheel the guy was growing out of was moving, very, very slowly rotating backwards, counterclockwise, that they call it in juju, windershins. My eyes bored in on the guy, his head facing downward like a fresh kill. Then the wheel creaked and groaned, stone crushing against stone as he rotated back towards the top. So, you have come. The thing croaked, his voice hoarse after who knows how long of silence. You've been waiting for me, have you? I said with a chuckle, but knowing this was no apparition, but rather the main event I'd been sent here to find. I have, through eons, and now, I'm finally ready to take my leave of this world. He said with a sigh that seemed more a death rap. So what am I supposed to do? Come up there and kill you? I asked, going over in my mind just how that might be accomplished should this guy climb down off that thing and try to make trouble for me. Kill me? The thing whispered the stone head creaking back and forth. But I am already dead. Dead 
and consigned to spend my days in silent contemplation of my foolishness and folly. Go on, I said, thinking this was just starting to get interesting, and maybe worth my trouble to get here after all. What's your folly and foolishness? I've got a few of my own. Greed. Greed that put the promise of a demon's treasure ahead of my own sense that such things as described to me could never be. He added, his voice dropping to an even softer whisper. But you see, the demon I discovered here was myself. The demon I had always been. I jumped back as the stone creature dissolved into a writhing serpent of smoke and poured down off the great wheel and engulfed me in hideous laughter. <laughs> For a time, that smoke and I were one, a mix of mind and flesh, each devouring the other, probing, seeking, hungering for all the other knew and was. Then I stopped. I just stopped fighting the thing and gave in to it. Go on. You're free now. I'll take your place here on the wheel. I'll become what you have been for uh, such a very long time. And he balked. You would take my place? Yes. Willingly? He asked, the suspicion thick in that unhuman voice. Willingly. You see, my foolishness and folly are my curiosity, my desire to know all things, or as much of it as I'm able to get my hands on in the time I have allotted to me from the great by and by. But that ain't no sin, nor a thing I'm ashamed of. I see you've got some powerful juju here of a kind I've never laid eyes on before, and I want in on it. So go on. Old Frank Enfield's here now, and as long as Stintus has to be put on this wheel, well, I bet it's worth the cost of the ticket I gotta buy, I told him, as I felt myself melt into the rock, and my flesh and bone harden into the stone face of the great wheel of thirteen spokes. I then felt a great emptiness. The thing had departed without another word, not back into the world, but into the darkest spaces between the unknown and nothingness from where he'd come originally, so many, many years ago. About five minutes later, I had no damned intention of spending eternity or till kingdom come sunk into this wheel. No, sir. No matter how much time and effort it took me to get to this no man's land, I had a few ways up my sleeve to get out of here. By now, all I had to do was pretty much envision what was mine, and it came to hand. And just then, I envisioned the last of Coyote's shades I had stashed in my back pocket for emergencies. And this seemed like as good a time as any. I thought of the shade... And there it was, right in front of me. So I stepped into it and took my leave of that place. And there I was, in Coyote's dark time, all around me, as far as I could see above and below and beyond, and in between was stars, more than anybody could ever hope to count. I just knew that every last one of them was some kind of gateway to a land of marvels such as I'd never laid eyes on before and I could explore every last one of them using the Coyote Way and still make it home to Hudson in time to buy a round at the Huntsman and share the tale with anybody who'd believe me or who'd listen if just to hear a damn fine yarn. After that, I'd probably head down to the river and look in on the geezers, see what they had to say about all this. I picked out one of the stars that caught my eye for no damn good reason and gave it a push. Somewhere. I heard the librarian laughing, or maybe it was Coyote, or even the Baron Samdi, or yes, sir, maybe it was even me, old Frank Enfield himself, 
laughing to beat the band because he'd finally got it all figured out. Epilogue. I shouldered my way out onto the sidewalk. The early morning Hudson sunshine greeted me brutally as it needled its way into my eyes. My head thrummed and I winced, grabbing for my sunglasses. I hadn't been sure if I could even get hangovers anymore. Whatever high-test hooch the geezers concocted with their still answered that question for old Frank Enfield. I lost track after the first few slugs of the stuff. Now I was paying the price. When I stumbled back to my room around 2 a.m., there was a cryptic note from the librarian instructing me to be at the library at 9 a.m. sharp. No excuses, no exceptions. While that was odd enough, no one could have been more shocked than me when I arrived at the library and found it locked up tight as a drum with a note saying, closed until further notice, and signed with a flamboyant P.C., What the hell is that supposed to mean? I muttered and rubbed at my stubble. PC was obviously Phineas Crowley, the librarian's name when he was among the living, but also one I never heard him use himself the whole time I'd been working for the fella. I looked down and saw a glint of an old-style skeleton key jutting out from a keyhole that hadn't been there just a minute ago. A little ribbon hung from it with the words, To key our place, scrawled on it to key our place. What the hell is that supposed to mean? I said to myself. I shrugged and turned the key and the door opened. Not into the small town library that I was used to seeing. and Not even into the librarian's office and lair. But into a vast room that gave me vertigo and made me fall to my knees. Outside, the building was a little two-story brick structure that blended right into the small town. But inside was enormous. I stood gobsmacked for a few moments, standing on the threshold, poking my head inside and then back out. These two places just didn't line up, but I suppose I should have been used to stuff like this. I pocketed the key and closed the door behind me. My footsteps echoed in the vastness. Shelves of books ran into the distance in all directions, and they climbed the 30 or 40 stories high. This was a library befitting the librarian, and I realized what I'd been seeing for the last how many years was just a glamour to hide the entrance into his actual realm. The books housed here were too numerous to be from our world alone. I realized with a good bit of amazement that the books on these shelves must have been collected from other places, times, and realities beyond what I could grasp. I worked my way through the colossal shelves toward the back of the library, and eventually came to an enormous desk piled high with books. The words, Help me, were scratched into the surface. I moved past it and through a doorway that led to the librarian's office and inner sanctum. I let out a breath and relaxed. I'm not sure why, but that room full of more books than anyone could read in several lifetimes felt at the same time fascinating and terrifying and I felt relieved to be in a more familiar setting, even if it wasn't exactly normal either. Hey, it's Frank, I called out. I looked at my watch and saw it was nearly a quarter past. Sorry I'm a little bit late. If you had made me take the long way around, I'd have been here on time. No answer. I figured the librarian might be in one of the back rooms, tending to his private collection or maybe other things he got up to that even I wasn't privy to. But as I passed by his desk, I noticed an envelope with my name scrawled across the front and a large package underneath it. I chewed my lip. I was all set to have a discussion with the boss. I wanted to pick his brain on my situation and go over the details of the latest caper. But here we were again. Another note. Frank. It's been a long journey, but all journeys eventually end. That being said, the ending of one thing is also the beginning of something else entirely. It has been my experience that nothing truly ends. 
It's quite like fire taking something and seemingly destroying it, when in actuality it simply changes it into something else. Quite like you, dear boy. I think you've been tempered and tested enough. You know all you need to continue. Of course, there's more to learn. There is always more to learn. Do not become so inflexible that you can't learn something new. When you believe you know everything, Frank, it is time to realize how much you still don't know, and that will be dangerous for you. From now until that day, the library is in your hands. You will know when it is time to move on, I trust. At least, it is my hope that you will. <laughs> Good luck in your new role. Oh, two more things. There is a certain journal from a certain surgeon for your safekeeping. And finally, just know that you won't be seeing me again. I hate goodbyes. <laughs> Almost as much as I hate hellos. But the middle things, they are always grand. I have decided to move on elsewhere, and of course, elsewhere. Well, Frank, you have the resources at your disposal to do quite a bit of good. And if you don't understand something, look it up. You have a library, after all. <laughs> so use it. <laughs> Warmest regards, your librarian.